Now, elites in the African continent, which include political, religious, and community leaders, often claim that homosexual practices are an important Western evil. So many cases are triggering heated debates around gay rights on the African continent, where homosexuality has become a decisive issue. So why is Africa such a difficult place for the LGBTQ plus community? Scholars say there are many reasons, which include colonial laws, and religious morality. Uganda's parliament has passed a bill which would criminalize people who identify as LGBTQ, with those found guilty facing up to 10 years in prison. Under the proposed legislation, friends, family, and members of the community would have a duty to report individuals in same-sex relationships to the authorities. It's another warm welcome back to episode two, season four of Let's Talk Human Rights podcast. I am your host, Masichaba Masumula Wamdak, and I am excited that you are listening in again. Today, we touch base once again in South Africa, as well as East Africa, to Kenya. In 2019, the Friedrich Naman Foundation, FNF, launched a campaign titled An African Thing. The significance of this campaign was to empirically document how many instances in various African cultures and societies where homosexuality could be found prior to colonization. Evidence of this is found in many of the artworks in different parts of Africa, such as Ghana and Burkina Faso in the 18th and 19th centuries. For more on this, please see the show notes for an African Thing campaign. Lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer, intersex, and asexual rights, also known as LGBTQIA rights, have been and continue to be a highly debated and controversial topic among many African societies, both religiously and culturally. In the majority of African countries, same-sex relationships or acts of homosexuality are punishable by law. This includes public condemnation incarceration, and in extreme cases, also serving the death penalty, such as the recent case with the bill in the Ugandan parliament to exercise the maximum penalty in the form of the death sentence. This is with regard to any support or acts of defending LGBTQIA rights. To date, countries like Ghana, Kenya, Tanzania, and Nigeria still uphold laws that criminalize homosexuality. There have been notable changes in recent years in Mozambique, Seychelles, Angola, and Botswana, which have amended their laws to not criminalize LGBTQIA rights. But is it enough? Sometimes, the phobia transcends the spheres of government and lawmakers who enforce these laws. Even with active and engaged civil society, many are still divided on the priority of protection and recognition of LGBTQIA communities. When dislike or differing opinion graduates beyond intolerance and leans towards hatred and acts of violence, this alone makes it criminal. The prevalence of gender-based violence towards members of the LGBTQIA community is a phenomenon that goes mostly ignored and often not taken seriously. 
Similarly, stereotype mindsets towards members of the LGBTQIA community are those that some people see as giving them license to commit atrocities and condone behaviors to diminish the existence of others. In this episode journey, I am joined by Hijabi and Aquiline Isabel Mkosi to allow us to share in their life experiences. Hijabi is the pseudonym for our Kenyan guest for her protection. Hijabi is a queer, disabled feminist and a human rights activist. She is an intersectional feminist and continuously creates spaces for women with disabilities and the LGBTQIA community. Hijabi's work is centered on sexuality, religion, and disability justice. She is the founder of Henna Space, an organization of queer Muslim women and queer disabled people, creating visibility and advocacy. Focusing on intersectionality of sexuality, religion, and disability. Hijabi's work on disability justice is centered on bodily autonomy and integrity, and that disabled people are diverse, living and affected by different forms of marginalization. She is also an advocate for inclusive and affirming faith spaces. Isabel is 32 years old and a proud mother of three. Born and raised in the rural areas of Binga in Zimbabwe, she later moved to Johannesburg, South Africa, where she currently lives. Isabel is a scriptwriter, director, and producer. She defines herself as an entrepreneur, lesbian, and filmmaker. Through her film work, she tells the stories of the African LGBTQIA community to the world. Her first body of work was through her first film titled Messed Up, which is based on cyberbullying and gender-based violence against a gay boy child. Her goal is to educate through scripting for societies at large in the hope that the world understands that all lives matter, straight or gay. Love is love. Isabel joins me here in studio today. Welcome, Isabel. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having us, Maschal. And Hijabi <laughs> joins us virtually from Kenya. Um, and you will hear some delightful playing of children in the background, which I think adds to a very beautiful and relaxed ambiance. Hijabi, welcome and thank you for joining us this afternoon. Thank you, Chaba. Hi, Isabel. It's really nice to see you. <laughs> nice to meet you too. You look great. <laughs> Now, to the two of you, before we begin, or protocol observed, I have to ask, please let me know which pronouns you prefer to go by. Um, her. <laughs> you will go by her. And uh, hijabi? She, her. She. All right. So with that said, because it, it is important and it, it, it's really good to set the tone in this regard um, because it's one of the identifiers um, of people coming from the LGBTQIA plus community and it's one really that um, should should be taken into consideration respectfully. Hijabi, you identify as queer. For our listeners who may not be familiar with the definitions and differences Please briefly elaborate on this for us against the other identifiers from the community. Um, I identify as queer, a lesbian as well. Um, and this is a political identity for me um, in the sense of not the norm of cis heteronormativity, 
but also within what the society defines as what is acceptable and what is not. If you're looking at aspects around what a woman should and should not be, but also what bodies should and should not be, because I am also a disabled person. And so like this is important to me because it means querying um, whatever identity it is that I am. Now, you mentioned that um, you were born with a disability. It's one of the identifiers, as we are speaking about identifiers, being Muslim, identifying as queer and lesbian, and then, of course, um, having the disability. How would you say these labels um, have impacted you growing up, especially as you came into your own sexual orientation? And further to that, how was your relationship with your family since being vocal about being queer and lesbian? Yeah, so as I mentioned, like I grew up with a disability. I identify as a disabled person. And um, I also spent a lot of my time in boarding school, which um, I think it's also like something a bit triggering because it's a lot of conversation around institutionalization of disabled people. And um, so I think like this gave me an opportunity to start being myself. And I think being disabled already is means that I do not conform to what society expects me to be. It means that I am not, you know, like the ideal Muslim woman, right? And so in a way, this allowed me to come into myself as a queer person but also like gave me an opportunity to as well um relook at my faith and what you know like sort of queering islam for me and seeing trying to see myself as a disabled person in islam um, but also as a queer person and um as i grew up and this became more and more um alive to me and a time when i felt like i needed to come out uh, much later after school it was having to choose between family and myself and family in the sense of religion and what they understood Islam to be and where I was coming from because I needed to be myself. I needed to choose myself. But then, um, unfortunately, I had to leave home to just allow me to be me. And, yeah, that was a, a terrible depressing time because it meant that I had to leave a part of me that was there for a long time since I was growing up but also battling with for how long do I remain in a cave and not just with my sexuality but also just around my thoughts on certain things around like religion and yeah and I think a lot of times also it's the conversation on um, disabled people being um infanticized right so like you expected to be a child for for your, the rest of your life as a disabled person but also for me it was choosing myself and being independent as a disabled person yeah thank you for sharing that um hijabi because you know one of the things that we really want to highlight with this particular conversation is a conversation around stereotypes you're mentioning now um, the challenges, you know, the hardest challenges you had to face uh, from growing up, especially in relation to your family. I would like to ask you, please, also what you would also have defined as the biggest challenge also um, in terms of 
being part of the community in Kenya, being a Kenyan national, and how people and society also, um, in their own ways, um, view uh, people coming from the LGBTQIA plus community, specifically being queer and lesbian, in your instance. I refer specifically now to a headliner story in 2022, where uh, allegedly a gay man was found murdered and put in a metal container on the side of the road. And, you know, have more examples like these happened in recent days and maybe even prior to the story breaking? Um, yeah, I think um, Kenya as a, as a society is very mixed on, in, in terms of issues around morality or culture because, like, we all agree there's no one Kenyan culture. And it's unfortunate of what happened to, um, to Chiloba, who was murdered. Um, and I think even recently in 2023, we are seeing people coming out to against, um, I mean, like to criticize LGBT persons, um, against LGBT people's rights. And really, like this is a reflection of what people have been experiencing in their private and even in public spaces, because um, you find that for example, in spaces of worship where queer people are being ostracized or even in schools when accessing healthcare and accessing other services, even in family, in you know, like finding your space within society, within family um, is quite challenging. And this is like a case that has been highlighted. But of course, there's many more. There was Sheila who was murdered as well, um, raped and murdered. And so you find that yeah, these things have been happening, but very little has been done to visibilize these um, experiences and cases. And also, on the other hand, is where we have Kenya that is perceived or is progressive. In the constitution, we have, I think, one of the most progressive constitutions, but then the situation in reality is, is different. And this is not to say that all things are bad, like it's all bad things, but there's the good things where we've gained, you know, like, for example, the courts have allowed um, the registration of LGBT organizations um, under the freedom of assembly and association, right? And of course, like, we've had to, we've been able to engage in conversations and dialogues with within community. And I think that's a big step towards um, inclusion and affirming of LGBT people and their rights. Yeah, it's it's really great um, that you've touched on this because um, the fact that there is a progressive uh, culture or mindset in terms of accommodating, tolerating, um, and actually not making this an issue. Because I suppose for any heterosexual situation, it's not one that has to have fora to debate it. So I, I actually would like to come in and ask, um, I mean, you speak about this progressive nature of the constitution and people sort of, you know, being more open-minded to 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 the idea. Um, have you ever felt unsafe or felt as though um, your life was being put at risk? I ask specifically now because we are actually using... Um, we have a level of anonymity with you being a guest um, for this particular conversation. Yes, <laughs> because as I mentioned earlier, like the context in which I come from is very restrictive. And um, what I would say was 
some time back when I left home is the time when I felt extremely unsafe because then it was people looking for me. It was, I wasn't sure of who I'm engaging with. I wasn't sure of my life safety, but I think, um, so like that's coming like from the people I relate with, but generally in the public, I think I have a bit of past, quote, like what we say in the community, the past, whereby someone looks at me and they would be like, oh, this is a very cute Muslim girl. They don't think of me, a disabled girl as well. So like they don't think of me as queer. And that kind of allows me to be sort of safe but then the moment someone like just types my name or like gets to know the work I do it's a whole different situation and of course like my safety is not just for me it's also like for the people I love it's for my friends it's for my community it's for also the work that I do it means like me going into certain spaces or certain countries it's explain what you're doing the work you're doing and if it's like oh I'm doing this work with LGBT people then it's a risk to myself and to the people around me. Thank you for sharing this, um, Hijabi. And I think it's it's definitely a conversation that needs to be continued. And as we think about a personal narration of, you know, where our stories come from and sort of the landmark moments that really shape our thinking and towards personal activism, Isabel, I'd like to um, bring you into the conversation at this point. Um when you and I were introduced, I remember uh, one of the things that really resonated with me was the story um, of your very good friend, um, which you narrated through the film, Messed Up. Um, can you please briefly just take our listeners through the storyline, um, where it emanated from, and um, what really inspired you to to, to write the story? So the story of Messed Up came about with um, a friend of mine, Tawanda. Actually, I don't know if I should put it like as a friend of mine or sort of like he was like a student of mine because he was uh, 17, if I'm not mistaken. Okay, so Tawanda came here in SA with, to live with his uncle. So, and he's from Zimbabwe and we both know uh, coming from Zim and having to side to stay this side and having to stay with the uncle who is like a hardcore Catholic and whom we believe that he wouldn't do anything to harm Tawanda or if even if he found out about Tawanda's sexuality, we would think he would be somebody that can protect. But in this case, he wasn't protected. He was 17. He, he It was during COVID-19. So he had to move out from his house because when his uncle found out that he was gay, he started actually uh, raping him. Instead of protecting him, he started sleeping with him in his words. Uh, so says Tawanda. He would tell him that he's doing that so that Tawanda can understand or feel that whatever he's doing, it's not right. So the pain in which he inflicted on him was so that he, will, he could understand that being gay is not even a way. Which now left me with the question, um, who exactly is gay and hiding? Was it Tawanda or was it the uncle who was actually gay and hiding? Because if the uncle wasn't gay, I believe that he would have just maybe chased him away like the rest do. They would just chase, chase you away. But in his 
on, he, he didn't even, on top of chasing him away, he would rape him and chase him away. He goes back to apologize. He accepts him and pretend to have forgave him. Then he ends up again uh, at night going after him. So for me, I took that as a gender-based violence. And for Tawanda, he couldn't even say it out loud because he wasn't really a feminine gay guy. You know, there, there is, there's a feminine gay person whereby you can tell when the person is walking that, okay, this person is gay. But with Tawanda, he was a boy, 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 like you would think he's a man or a straight man. So it was hard for him to actually go to anyone and say, guys, I'm being abused at home. What should I do? Because now you being a boy and being raised in an African home and saying you are being raped by a man, no one, seriously, no one um, takes you seriously. You can just tell your friends, they'll laugh at you. You can tell somebody, they'll think you're lying. Isabel, I'd actually like you to, to, to actually also just go into how the story of Tawanda ended, because I think this speaks very deeply and very seriously to a situation which is felt um, probably by many people living in the community who have not exercised their rights, as it were, to come out. Um, what did happen to Tawanda? And of course, this is also an opportunity for our listeners also to to look up the film and, and get the bigger and fuller story there. Yeah. Okay, firstly, I would like to say in real life, Tawanda passed away. He died. But in the film, I didn't uh, kill Tawanda because I wanted to have a sequel to is to explain why, because Tawanda was now involved in both gender-based violence and cyberbullying, whereby he dated this guy. And now the family of the guy also blackmailed him into doing the wrong things, probably uh, some wanting to sleep with him, some wanting to do this. And everyone just saw, I don't know how I can put it uh, for you to sound proper, but... I would just say he was just being used and being blackmailed into sleeping with the brother, into doing this thing because he was trying by his own means that the word gay doesn't reach his uncle. But at the end of the day, ended up reaching his uncle. So he was going through all of that and him having to be chased away out of the house, going on streets, trying to find a way to survive. Is everybody else there? Because I've seen a lot of um, boys on streets and some of them, they are not there just because they started smoking the wrong things or whatever, but they, they, they smoke those things because some, they had no, no way out or that they didn't have any option out of it. If you get to, to speak to them and understand why they ended up being there. And to the story, Tawanda almost um, ended up like the guys we see on street with, they now call them Nyaobes. So I don't know, Guti, how should I put it? Just for context for our listeners, Nyaube is a drug, a drug concoction, uh, specifically very popular to South African societies. Um, it's a very addictive drug, uh, one that is, uh, I believe, mixed even with ARVs and a concoction of other drugs. On that note, um, I would like to move on um, to your personal journey, Isabel. You were in a heterosexual relationship. Um, you are a mother of three, as already put in the introduction. Can you take us through your journey of realization um, and your awakening around your own sexual orientation? I would say that I grew up in Zim. As growing up, I was always different because my mother, she never taught me to do things like what girls and other girls do. So I grew up different. I grew up even, I remember when I was in grade six, I, my, I was uncomfortable wearing skirts. Not that at that point, I didn't even know why 
I wasn't so uncomfortable wearing skates at grade seven. Then when I was doing grade seven, I had stopped wearing skates. So my mother would just take a skate and sew it into a trouser so that I can wear and be comfortable because I used to just hate cows and do mostly what boys do at home. So my mother was training me in a way of a boy or a man, if I can put it like that. So I never really got the chance or the opportunity to be trained as a girl, even though I was a girl. So when I was in grade seven, I used to do sports, attend everything. So we had to travel in, for school. We had to travel outside the outside our school to another school. So there we had we, we had sports. So when we got there, the sports everything went well. Then after sports, because I used to stay with my teacher at school because of the lack of finance, my mother. So I had to stay with my teacher and help here and there so that I could help to pay our school fees. As we both know the the situation back at home it's not really as easy as um we can see it so my teacher she had gone to spa to buy some stuff so she just left me in the house so like, being a real girl and you know I was still young there was tv and everything else so I was just excited about everything and just oh, being overwhelmed and everything so my teacher who used to teach us drama who was the younger brother to my teacher uh he just walked in um out of the blue and he started asking me about having a boyfriend he asked, started asking me why do i dress up like a boy he started um asking me a lot of which a lot of questions which at that point i didn't even have answers to because i myself i didn't even know that i was a lesbian or whatever uh, for me i was just a girl who liked playing uh, boy soccer who loved it just doing sports like that. So yeah, he just walked in and the conversation took to another level. He just raped me on that day. So he raped me. I tried to cry out for help, but he was too strong for me. Because it seemed like the more I say, please stop, you're hating me. It was more, he wanted to do whatever he was doing, even more. How old were you, Isabel, when this happened? I was 13. So when it happened, apparently they, uh, they said I passed out. Then I woke up in the hospital where I stayed for two weeks, stay in the hospital because according to my mother, I had some stitches that had happened and I had only one month seeing my woman, is it my periods? I don't know how to put it in there. So I woke up in the hospital and then my mother came two weeks later, I was discharged. Then we went back to the village. Uh, from the village, everything was fine according to me. Um, then I could see that we could be going to the hospital like every month. So when I asked my mother, like, why do we always have to go back to Wange? Okay, um, the place where we used to go, it would like take a bus and then go to town. So I'll ask you, why do we have to go back to Wange? And then she'll be like, no, remember that thing that happened. We just have to go there so that we check that nothing bad happened. Then I'll ask, then what happened to my periods? Because I only saw my periods once and now. And then she'll respond and say, um, no, that was, a, this, that was a sign that she would become like, I'm sorry, guys, um, kind of bringing back uh, the bad memories. We hear you, Isabel. Yeah, sorry. We, sorry. This is difficult. And I acknowledge sitting with you here right now in this moment in the room that the recollection alone is hard. Yeah. So, yeah, that was um, the situation. So I wasn't aware that I was even pregnant. Uh, until the pregnancy was sort of like nine months. I remember it was in January. No, it was towards January. It was on Christmas. My mother was not feeling well. So she, she used to have this bag of hers that she could hand back. So she would just send me like a run. And the stomach, uh, to my surprise, didn't even come out. I just became sh more shorter and just, I didn't even know, to be honest, um, 
that I was pregnant. Not, not even a single person in my family ever mentioned or even said that I was pregnant. So I went to the, uh, to the room to get the tablets. So inside that bag, I found the card. That card is the card which identifies a pregnant woman that my, my mother used to take with me when we go to the hospital where she told me that we're just going there just for checkup of whatever had happened. So when I found out, um, I, I could read, I could see everything that is mentioned, my age, and everything else was there. So that was when I found out that I was pregnant. So I didn't even ask what was happening or anything. I, we used to like farm cotton in my family. So there was this medicine they call roca. I don't know how they call it in other countries, but I just took it and drank it on that day. And then, yeah, for them to reach um, the doctor, the, the village doctor, it was, I don't know how that happened, but then... I remember me losing my breath, having to drive to the hospital, to the clinic. The clinic, they rejected me. They said they were not going to take the case. And then um, we had to go to the bigger hospital. Then by the time we got there, I don't even know how or what happened. Apparently, I survived. I'm here. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. Yes. <laughs> so, yeah. Until I gave birth. And then it was actually my uh, the sister to my teacher who had read me who actually decided to go against her family and file for a case to get his brother arrested um then his his brother got arrested the court and everything else started and i gave birth on the 8th of january to twins um my children and then after that when i gave birth to the children uh i think it was anger I couldn't want to, I didn't want to touch the kids. I didn't want to talk to my mother. I just didn't want to talk to anyone. So when I go, when we got home, they would just tie my hands, tie my feet so that I could breastfeed the kids. Then two weeks later, I ran away from home. Then I started trying to find myself. Now running away from home at that early age because I was only doing grade seven. I was in grade seven when all these things were, were happening. I had to find myself. So I had to run to the big city and work as a house girl. Now working as a house girl, as a tomboy, people would just mock me and be like, yeah, this will pass. You are just, just a phase. Yeah, it's it was a journey. Isabel, you've shared a very, very sensitive and delicate part of where your journey came from, from childhood to what transpired and the events that followed, which have also shaped um, your thinking and how you have also had to journey through discovery, realization, and just being who you are and finding yourself. With gender-based violence and with regard to speaking to the issue of um, homosexuality, people from the community, you know, violence against women is a very big problem, not just in South Africa, in Southern Africa, spreading throughout East Africa as well. Have you reported any of this to the authorities? I know we, we did speak about it, but I wish for you to also use this platform to speak about, you know, where we spoke about labels, where we spoke about perspective and how people take things just because it may not be perceived as what they regard as normal. What is the level of seriousness that you are taken with your partner when, when you have reported? And this is not just homophobic, it's criminal. 
I would say maybe it will just start from my experience of what I went through and having me to write messed up and explaining the story of Tawanda, who also went to the same similar situation. And now having to find myself in a relationship that threatens my life or just because I'm a lesbian and I'm dating a woman who has been married to a man before. So this is kind of a threatening both myself and my partner of somebody threatening to kill, threatening to rape, threatening I'll never ever lose my partner because of a woman. There's no way. I'd rather just kill. I'd rather just do this. And now because of the society we live in, to be honest, if that man were to do this, there will be certain people who actually support him. In as much as we'll, at that particular time or at this moment, we would like to shout out as much as we can and say, hey, guys, this is happening. We are facing this situation. Many people will um, come into this story and many will support and some will even find a way to harm, to harm us even further. Not only myself and my partner, but as I appear, I'm a tomboy. I'm comfortable wearing like a guy. So to some guys or to some people out there, when they see me wearing like a guy, they say, okay, you are a man or you want to be a man. As he said, the guy, when he was in, um, threatening that, I, want, I would like you to show me your private part, which is that of a man. Because now you are, if you are taking my girlfriend, that means you have that part which all men uses to get the girlfriend. So I would like you to show me that. Until you don't show me that, we will make sure that we will rape you and we will kill you. And it is unfortunate. You know, this is, this is something which is a continuum. And it is so unfortunate that we still find ourselves here in 2023 where we have to still openly speak so... In a way that, that almost feels like we never went anywhere, as you say. It feels like a lot of people are saying a lot of things. But nothing actually is moving ahead. I would at this point um, want us to go into playing an audio clip from a campaign um, which the Friedrich Naman Foundation ran in 2019. The short documentary was called My Home, My Body, My Dreams, Reflections by African LGBTQIA plus Refugees Living in South Africa. This was an initiative and a collaboration by FNF and the People Against Suffering, Suppression, Oppression and Poverty, also known as PASOP. Please take a listen. Uh, the first change I get in my country, I was in the jail. The second one, uh, the guy, you shoot me, I have a damage in my body. Thing for being gay is like a abomination. Gay people are worse than pigs or dogs or cats. It was the same statement. I think that constantly brings you a fear. So that's why I decided actually let me run away. More than 30 African countries have anti-gay laws, with some countries going as far as posing the death penalty for same-sex relationships. Homosexuality is found throughout Africa. However, with the law, social norms, and intolerance from the community and family, many gay, lesbian, bisexual, and transgender Africans end up fleeing their home countries to seek refuge in countries that protect gay rights. To lose a mother's life, that is the most painful thing. 
in life? I went to Joburg first. I was in Joburg for a month and so forth, uh, sleeping by the train stations. And until I actually take a train, the one to Cape Town. That's how I get to get to Cape Town. Most of the people who are coming to South Africa from other African countries, most of them, I should say a good percentage of them, they're coming because of their sexual orientation. And they look at uh, South African constitutions, South African law accommodates homosexuality. Some of the issues are uh, the fact that LGBTIQ plus persons who come from outside of South Africa into South Africa are often in the closet. And this, they're in the closet for very specific reasons in their country. The way in which the law enables persons to gain access into the country is that you must declare your status if that's one of the ways in which you want to be identified as somebody seeking refuge in South Africa. The challenges faced by the African LGBTQI plus community seeking refuge in South Africa sadly do not end when they get to South Africa. Many people who come into the country in that way haven't processed uh, some of those issues in their own bodies and in their own uh, spaces yet. And when they arrive in the country, they're thrust into that identity and may feel vulnerable, may feel even more vulnerable. When they arrive in South Africa, the South African communities that people end up staying in are not necessarily very uh, comforting, very inclusive. In particular, there's a very high level of xenophobia. We know that from 2008, some of the events that happened there. Even here in Cape Town, I'm not safe, 100% safe. Listening to this clip again, for me personally, took me on a journey back to the stories we as FNF have been part of narrating to garner discourse around this very important issue of preserving the human rights of all individuals. The hope that a lot of refugees from the community carry when they arrive in South Africa, of course, are shattered once they get here because they face similarly maybe to not so much of a large extent the the sort of intolerance that they were hoping to 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 get themselves away from hijabi having listened to this audio um let's speak to your work in the activism space collectively of course not only women but men also bear the brunt of abuse and condemnation from society at large what is topical in your activism space to build the connections and foster support for fighting for the safety and the right to be uh, in the community um, for LGBTQIA plus rights in Kenya, if this is even possible. Um, so listening to the clip, I think for me, it's like how similar things are. And we say, of course, um, in the clip, and even Chaba, you said, that homosexuality is African. It's we are Africans and we are here. And it's what it's how homophobia has been put in Africa that it's very similar the things that some of the people are sharing about perceptions of LGBTQ people, which is very similar to what some Kenyans would say about LGBTQ people. And um also around the issues of refugees as well. 
um, it's it's a very pertinent issue because you find like unfortunately people have to leave their countries, their homes to seek refuge in other countries. And this is not a pleasant issue because obviously like you want to stay in a home in a country that affirms you, in a country that sees you as who you are as a citizen. But then you find like people have to leave as an option, right? People have to leave. Sometimes they don't have option, but to leave for their safety. And I can't imagine what that feels for someone to leave their families, sometimes to leave their loved ones and seek refuge in another country. And even being in that country, sometimes they face racism. Uh, sometimes it's homophobia. Sometimes it's transphobia. It's Islamophobia. And so like, um, yeah, this is like also very um, alive in Kenya and especially at this moment where um, we have the um, introduction of the protection, Family Protection Act, which has not yet been passed. But of course, there has also been conversations around um, banning people who come to Kenya to seek refuge based on sexual orientation, gender identities and expression. And so that means if this is implemented, LGBTQ plus people, um, asylum seekers will not be able to come to Kenya. And we know like Kenya has a very big um, number of LGBT, uh, LGBT refugees, but also generally refugees. Um, there's also like, of course, the issue around violence that LGBTQ people now have to um, endure and live with, right? So like, um, People are experiencing physical violence. They're being evicted from their homes. Um, their house landlords and landladies are having to like chase them away from their homes. The families are now also like coming up. We've had like demonstrations by Muslim religious leaders at the coasts um, where they're calling for criminalization and even like very cruel actions against queer people. And this is something that I think um, obviously like has mental health impact on people. And um, so like, yeah, the issue of mental health is also like a big concern for people because when you're not feeling safe and of course, like there are people who have lost their jobs as well. Um, even like people being in spaces has become a challenge because if you're a um, trans Muslim woman, who has been going to a certain mosque for a long time, but now with this negative visibility, with this call for mass action against the queer community in Kenya, you find that someone cannot even go to the spaces which felt safe for them, the spaces which they would access to find community or even to, you know, like to, to like just feed their spiritual um, needs. Um, there's also like the issue around um, constant threats and violence against whether it's women or like whether it's gay men or trans people. And this is unfortunately sometimes it's um, committed by people close to them. And like now, whom do you trust, right? It's a place where even organizing is becoming challenging, where um, some political leaders or some leaders in the country are threatening to close down LGBT organizations. 
And we find that, of course, LGBT organizations are working to do the work that the government should be doing in the first place to protect the rights of everyone. But when um, the organizations are being threatened, we don't know what that would mean. So, like, people are currently living in a lot of uncertainty and not knowing what next, what would that be? Um, People have never had to leave their countries to seek refuge in other countries. But now that's something that people may be thinking about. In conclusion, um, to both of you, um, Hijabi and Isabel, I'll start with you, Hijabi. Having walked the path you've endured, um, even in the now, what is your wish for freedom of self and right to be realized? And freedom from persecution in the literal and figurative sense? Hmm. That's a beautiful question. Um, For me, it's for the universe or everyone really to accommodate and understand that we are all, um, we are all seeking freedom. We are all seeking happiness and I think the moment we are able to create space for each other to be exactly who they are, that would be like a a very peaceful place and a place of freedom for me. And also to acknowledge that um, we are an expression of something bigger than us. We are part of this universe and that means diversity. And the moment we want to curtail that diversity, the moment we want to put that diversity in a box, then we it means we're like no one is going to be free. Thank you, Hijabi. Isabel? Mm-hmm. I think I'll mostly just agree with Hijabi on this one. To be honest, all we, 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 we are asking for is to be accepted. Or maybe even if, okay, in my way of storytelling, if I'm telling a story of the LGBTQ community, I expect out of my story that at least I get five people. I'm not even asking for more than that. At least to understand or to have their answers, some of them answered. Because in today's generation, you will still meet somebody who will say, you know what, I still don't understand. Can you maybe explain what's happening? Some will want you to explain in a good way because they want you to understand. Some will want you to explain because they just want to mock you. So if you find somebody who is actually willingly wanting to understand, okay, so I've met people, I've seen uh, somebody like this, but I really don't understand. You understand? So for me as a storyteller, I'll write and ask and, and give you a question as to you, you ask yourself, why are you gay? Is the questions which we're getting today. Why are you gay? Why are you a lesbian? And I would like to add up on that by saying, you know, it's like, it's not every lesbian woman that has been raped that turned out to be a lesbian. It's not every woman. And being a lesbian woman, it does not mean I hate men. It does not mean that I have anything against men. It just means I'm a woman who is in love with another woman or I'm a woman who finds love in another woman and I'm comfortable with that. What a powerful ending to a very, very, very um, deep conversation that we've had. Um, Thank you, Isabel. Thank you so much, Hijabi. Um, I think there's no better way of just simply putting it It is that simple. It's really, it doesn't progress further than that. I'd love to thank both of you so much for making the time 
to really tap into parts of your life which maybe ordinarily you you would not speak about in open platforms. Thank you for allowing us into your space um, and into your past and your experiences. What a thought-provoking conversation. And I am so grateful to our guests for sharing their personal experiences. Some of the things that stood out for me in this conversation were the immense personal pain and suffering that both guests have endured over a number of years and the very real cost they've paid to live their realities and find their voice to eventually speak up for themselves and others. It seems impossible that we still need to say these things, but the danger of stereotyping breeds toxicity in the narrative and can literally be life-threatening, causing deep emotional and indelible pain. We all have a responsibility to learn more about these issues and be better informed, to be better people to each other. My right, your right, our right. Humanity should and continues to be for us all. This has been the second episode, season four of Let's Talk Human Rights, the FNF Africa podcast exploring various human rights issues. We trust you have been informed and enlightened by it. The Friedrich Naumann Foundation Sub-Sahara Africa, FNF, is an independent German organization that is committed to promoting liberal ideals and politics in Africa such as human rights, the rule of law, democracy, innovation, digitization, and free trade. By conducting campaigns, media events, seminars, workshops, study tours, cultural happenings, and training courses, the Foundation promotes human rights, including freedom of expression, freedom of the press, children's rights, and LGBTQIA rights, and engages against violence targeting women and capital punishment. If you are interested in our activities, follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Simply check for Friedrich Naumann Foundation Africa. The links are in the show notes.